Fado, Fado, a long time ago, in the time of fighting men and gods, there was a tale, they told it well, and it is remembered against the odds. With the great armies behind her, with Fergus MacRoish by her side, Queen Maeve set out to the north, to Ulster, and to the Dun Coolig. On the night before they were to cross over Ulster's borders, Queen Maeve had a dream. A dream she did not tell Fergus MacRoish about. A dream she did not tell her husband Aleel about. A dream of prophecy. A dream that told victory. But a dream she chose to keep to herself. In her dream, Maeve stood in her war chariot, looking out over her great army. She saw in a field, in a connacht field, the two great bulls, the white bull and the brown, the Dunculig brought to Connacht. She turned to the woman standing beside her in the chariot, for she felt she was not alone. She turned and said, See, I am victorious. The woman nodded and said, Queen, yes, you have brought the bull to Connacht. But look again. Why need I look again? I have victory in my sight. The woman was one she recognised. A poet. Indeed, the woman was a great filly. She was known as Fainaltem, and she was known for her gift of sight and of prophecy. Look again, said the poet, and this time see through my eyes. Maeve again looked out over her army, and this time she saw them red. She saw them all crimson, and running about between them was a dog, a small hound, yapping and worrying at her warriors, turning them red, turning them crimson. What does this mean? Maeve asked the poet in her dream. I see victory, I see the Dun Coolig, I see it is mine. Yes, said the poet of Maeve's dream but you also see your warriors red. You see them crimson. Heroes' blood will flow. Women's tears will water the land and the hound of the smith shall call out. Do you see as I see, Queen Maeve? See as I see and make your judgment, she King of Connacht. And with that, Maeve awoke. The dream still hung in her mind, but as is the way of dreams on waking, it began to fade. All that remained in Maeve's mind was a sense that she would be victorious and the image of a dog running across a field of red. But she pushed these thoughts aside. Sometimes a dream is just a dream, after all. But still, she did not mention it to Fergus or to Aleel. And that day Maeve and her army crossed the border from Connacht to Ulster. None opposed them. For the very instant they set foot upon Ulster's soil, Every man of Ulster, old enough to grow a beard on his chin, fell down in the pangs of labour. The army travelled on, led by Fergus MacRoish. But Fergus suddenly stopped and raised his hand, halting their progress. Before him stood a great standing stone. About the stone was twisted a great ring, a ring made from one solid branch of an oak tree, twisted about in such a way that it had not broken and attached to it was a message, a message carved in the old language, a message carved in the old signs of tree and memory. Let no man pass 
lest he can do as I have done, take one branch, and with one hand twist and wrought it to a ring, and then with that same hand throw that ring about this stone, till a man who can do as I have done has been found. Do not dare to cross this point. Fergus stood as still as the stone itself, staring at the ring made from the branch of an oak tree that wrapped about it. Why do we stop? called Aleel. Is it only to take in the view? It is a message, replied Fergus, pointing to the stone. A message and a warning. A message and a warning from who? asked Maeve. Surely every man of Ulster is at this moment wailing in his bed. Indeed, replied Fergus. The curse is upon them. Every warrior, champion, member of the Red Branch Knights, old enough to grow a beard upon his chin. And there is something you are not telling me, said Maeve, drawing closer. Who can stand against us when the curse of Maka is upon the men of Ulster? Who indeed, replied Fergus. But one not old enough to grow a beard upon his chin. A boy, laughed Maeve. A boy would stand against me and my armies. There is one. One who is a warrior, a champion, a member of the Red Branch Knights. And indeed, when I last saw him, he could not grow a beard upon his chin. One man against my armies. One man to defend Ulster from all of Ireland. One man to us shall be like a gnat to the great bull itself. One man, repeated Fergus. The one they call the Hound. But of course he was not always called the Hound. He's remembered today as Cuhullin, Cuhullin the Hound of Ulster. But his mother, she called him Satanta. The mother who named him thus was Dectoran, and his father, well, that was a more complicated matter. Dectrin was the sister of Cahor Macnessa and was a gifted horsewoman. She was, in fact, the king's own charioteer, and there were those who whispered that Dectra served the kings in more ways than one, and that Cahor himself was the father of his nephew. But there was another story about how Dectrin came to be with child, and how Satanta came to be born. One day Cahor and his men were out hunting, and as his charioteer Dectrin was of course with them, they saw a flock of birds appear in the sky, marvellous birds with feathers that shone like pearls and jewels about their throats. They of course began to chase the marvellous birds, but as they chased the birds a mist came down upon them, and they found themselves surrounded by snow and lost in a blizzard. Dectrin called that she could see a house, and so they went there to ask for shelter. They were greeted at the door by a tall man, who seemed to be clad in gold with gold-coloured hair. The golden man said he would give them shelter, but his wife was about to give birth to a child, and no man but he could enter the house during this time. Instead he showed the men to the stable, but Dectrin, being a woman, was permitted to enter the house and asked to assist with the birth. Dectrin's only experience of midwifery to that point had been assisting with the birthing of cults, but she reasoned that a mare and a woman could not be that different, and so she did what she could to help the woman. 
She could not remember what the woman's face looked like. All she could remember afterwards was the woman's smell. She smelt like cut grass and blossoms. She smelt like spring. Dectrin helped the woman deliver a child, a baby boy, and after the child was washed and wrapped and placed in its mother's arms, Dectrin laid herself down to sleep. But when she awoke, the house was gone. There was no sign of the man or the woman, and she was no longer in her brother's kingdom in Ulster. She walked and called out and eventually found people, and they told her that she was in Brunaboynia. She was in the kingdom of Meath. She was at Newgrange. She was not far from the hill of Tara itself, the seat of the high king of Ireland, the place where the Leofal, the stone of destiny, rested. Word was sent north that Dectra, the king's sister, the king's charioteer, had been found. For all of Ulster was frantic looking for her. The king's hunting party had gone out. All the men recalled chasing the fantastic birds, recalled the mist coming down upon them, becoming lost in the snow, being given shelter in a stable while Dectra went to assist with the birth. But when they woke up, they found that stable and house had vanished. They were lying in a field in Ulster and Dectra was nowhere to be found. None could explain how she had travelled so many, many miles south and been found in that most ancient of places, nestled in the sacred valley of the Boyne River. And on returning home, Dectra found there was one more thing she could not explain. She found that she was now with child. King Cahor acted quickly to try to quiet the whispers that were now surrounding his sister, and so he had her betrothed and married to a man to whom he owed a favour, Sulitan Macroish. There are some who say that Sulitan felt ashamed at being wed to a woman pregnant with another man's child, and that on the wedding night, as he lay atop his new bride, he tried to crush out the babe that was already within her so as to plant his own. What is known for certain is that the child Dectra gave birth to was a most marvellous child. He had seven colours of gold within his hair. He had seven smiles upon his face, each sweeter than the last, and he had seven colours within his eye. Even as a babe, it could be seen by all that this was no ordinary child. He possessed great strength and he grew at a prodigious rate. The nobles of Ulster all jockeyed and vied with each other as to who should get to foster him, this marvellous nephew of the king. And indeed the child was given over to many noble families to be educated and fostered. One of his foster fathers was indeed Fergus MacRoish, the noble former king of Ulster, and Fergus loved the child as if he was of his own blood. Indeed, of all his children and foster children, Fergus's two favourites were the boy Satanta and the boy Satanta's best friend, another of Fergus's fosterlings, a youth called Ferdia. And Satanta and Ferdia, as Fergus watched them grow, he saw a bond form between them, a bond stronger than any he had seen before, a bond stronger than that merely of foster brothers, a bond he felt certain could never be broken. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Satanta, the boy was called. But he is known to us as Cúhullan, the Hound of Cullen, for he was Cullen's hound before he became the Hound of Ulster. Cullen was a smith. He made the weapons for the Red Branch Knights, and his forge was guarded by a great hound. The hound was not a creature of this earth. It had been found within a burial mound, nestled within the skull, 
and it was said by some that the pup itself was the venom, hate and bloodlust of the long-dead hero. But the smith had taken the pup and raised it himself by hand. To Cullen, the hound was as loyal and gentle as any lapdog. It curled up to sleep by its feet. It licked its hand, it wagged its tail when it saw him approach. But to all others it was a fearsome beast of hell. If Cullen was not there to tell it to heal, it would take nine strong men pulling on a chain just to pull the beast within the gates of the forge. And the hound protected his master and his master's forge. Cullen was a skilled smith. Many a thief would have liked to break in and take his wares. So at night, Cullen would let loose the fearsome hound, set it to guarding his forge, guarding his hall, guarding his home. And woe unto any man, woman or child who would be unfortunate enough to cross the hound of Cullen. One winter, Cullen had been working hard on a new order of swords for the Red Branch Knights. The order was just finished and so to celebrate, Cullen had invited the king and all his men to come to his hall to inspect the new weapons and to attend a great feast that night. King Cahormac Nessa rode out early. He wished to speak to the smith alone before the rest of the night should arrive. And as he rode out, he saw a group of boys playing a game of hurley. These boys were the sons of the Red Branch Knights, members of the boys' troop who would one day take their father's places as the most fearsome warriors in Ireland. The game they played, hurling, it was not just a sport, not just a pastime. It was a form of hunting, a form of battle training. Gahor watched approvingly as they hit the slither with their hurls, sending it far and fast. But then he saw another boy, a younger boy, a smaller boy, run up. He seemed to be asking the older boys if he could join in their game. The older boys scoffed at the child and tried to send him away, but he was persistent. He waved about his own hurl, and when they refused to let him play, he became angry. He snatched the ball, the slither, and hit it such a blow that it flew far out of sight of all there. The older boys then became angry. They turned on the younger and told him to get out of there or they would make him regret it. But the young boy just laughed, asking if they were too afraid to take him on in a game. They replied that no. Of course they weren't afraid of a child, of a baby like him. The younger boy said, all right then. He'd take all of them on. All of them versus him. And so the game began. All of the boys troop against this one youth. Cahor sat atop his horse and watched. Though outnumbered, the boy ran so fast that there appeared to be multiples of him on the pitch. He struck the ball so hard that when the others tried to intercept it, it split their hurls in two. And as he watched, Cahor recognised the boy. This youth was none other than his own nephew, than Satanta. He called out. The boys stopped their game and became embarrassed and bashful in the presence of the king. All but Satanta, who smiled up at his uncle with his eyes of seven colours and shook his head with its seven colours of golden hair. You boys play well, and indeed you are a credit to Ulster. It will be a proud day when you become men and join the ranks of my Red Branch Knights. And I am going this very day to a feast with all of my knights, held at the hall of the smith Cullen. Satanta, my nephew, will you not join me? Satanta smiled a smile of seven colours of light, overjoyed to have been invited by his uncle to such a prestigious event. He said yes, he would love to come, he would be honoured to come, 
but he wanted to finish the game first. Cahor nodded. He told his nephew he could give them a blow-by-blow account of the game when he arrived at the Smith's Hall. And then he rode off, leaving the boys to their game. One by one, the knights arrived at the Smith's Hall. They each admired and praised the weapons he had made for them. When it was drawing dark, Cullen led them all into the feasting hall, but before they sat, he called out that he was about to release his hound to guard the hall, and he asked the king to make certain that all the knights were present, that none were missing or likely to arrive late, for once he loosed the hound, it would tear any stranger to pieces. Cahor, his mind on swords and shields and axes, looked around the hall and he saw, yes, all his knights were present and accounted for, and so he waved his hand at Cullen to release the beast, have it guard them while they feasted. It seemed the king had quite forgotten his invitation to his nephew, for the boy had yet to arrive. Satanta played on in his game, playing until the elder boys were tired and spent, and lay panting, exhausted in the grass. Only then did he rest his hurl upon his shoulders and turn and begin to make his way to the hall of the smith. Darkness was falling all about him, but the boy Satanta had no fear of the dark. Indeed, he had no fear at all as he made his way closer and closer to Cullen's hall. He could smell the wood smoke on the air and the scent of roasted meat. He could see the light from the fire shining, but the sounds that came to his ear were not those of laughter, of merriment or of song. Instead, he heard a low, deep growling, so low and deep that he felt it through his feet rather than hear it by his ear. The growl rose and became a snarl. Satanta rounded a corner and saw the hall of the smith. He saw that the gates, though, were shut, and before the gates, between him and the hall, was a great, enormous hound. Each of its teeth was more than the length of his hand. Its eyes burnt like the fires of the forge. Drool dripped from its muzzle, forming pools in the dirt. The hound saw the figure before it. It did not differentiate whether this was man or child. All it saw was a stranger, and a stranger was a trespasser, and a trespasser was a threat to its master. It gave one loud bark and then charged at the figure of the boy, mouth open, ready to rip into him, ready to split him open, ready to spill his guts upon the earth and then feast on the offal. Satanta saw the hound charging before him. He had no weapon to defend himself. All he had was his hurl and his slither. The boy took the slither in his hand, threw it into the air and then hit it with the hurl with all his might. His blow was straight and true. The small ball of leather and wood flew straight into the creature's mouth, straight through it and out the other side. The hound did not have time to howl, did not have time to think or even blink. In an instant, the great and fearsome hound of Cullen was dead. Inside the hall, the men had heard the growl and then the great bark of the hound. Cahor MacNessa jumped to his feet and screamed, My nephew! My nephew is coming! I forgot he was coming! All the men rushed out of the hall, rushed to open the gates, rushed to grab the great chain, hoping they could restrain the beast before the little boy was killed. They pulled open the gates, and none were prepared for the sight that met them. The boy, the youth standing there, unharmed, unmarked, his hurl in his hand and at his feet, 
the great and fearsome hound, dead. All were silent, all were astonished, till Cullen elbowed them aside and saw the hound, the dog he had raised from a pup, the creature he had loved and nurtured was dead. All the dog had wanted to do was protect its master, was keep him safe. It wasn't the dog's fault that he couldn't tell a trespasser from a guest arriving late. Cullen fell to his knees, pulling the great body of the hound into his lap, cradling it as he had when he was a pup who'd been frightened by thunder. He let out a low and bitter howl as he held the great head to his chest, rocking back and forth. Satanta looked at the smith, at the great man, broken by the death of his dog. I'm sorry, he said. I I didn't mean to. I, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. I. And the boy began to weep as well. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Who will greet me when I come home from work? Who will guard my hall and my forge now? Who can I trust, as I once trusted this dog? I will, cried Satanta through his tears. I will take the place of your dog. I will guard your forge. And I will greet you when you come out from work. And I'll do anything else your dog would have done for you. I'm so sorry. And I'll find you another dog. A dog you can love and trust just as much as this one. And I promise I'll train it up. But until that dog is ready, I will be your dog. I'll even sleep outside in the kennel if you want. I promise. I will be your hound. And the boy Satanta was true to his word. He guarded the smith's forge and his hall and his house. He greeted the smith each day as he went to and from work. And he did indeed find a pup, raise and train it to be the best guard dog and companion that Cullen could have. But until the pup was ready, Satanta was Cullen's hound. And for that he was renamed Coo Cullen. And in time, the boy who had been Satanta became not only the hound of Cullen, but the great hound of Ulster. And it was he, Cuhullen, warrior, champion, member of the Red Branch Knights who could not grow a beard upon his chin, he alone who escaped the curse of Macca. And so it was that the Hound of Ulster stood alone. And on that dramatic note, I will leave you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of me attempting to tell the tone. I've said it before in previous episodes, but I will mention again, this is my version of the tone. So I've been doing a lot of picking, choosing, conflating and probably mispronouncing of names. In the episode description, you can find links to some of the places I've been drawing on for bits and pieces of the story. And you can also find links to my social medias. Tell me what you think of my version of the tone so far. I'd love to hear if you have a favourite version or telling of the tone. I'm always interested to see how other storytellers have interpreted and retold this story. So in the episode description, you can find links to the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook. And if you really, really are enjoying this and would like to support financially, there's also a link to the Patreon. Thank you for listening. 
and I hope you will join me for the next episode now that Maeve's army have finally got themselves to Ulster and we have finally been introduced to who is considered the hero of the Tawn, Cúhollán. And while I personally have a lot of opinions on Cúhollán, many of which I won't really be able to voice here because uh, they relate to other stories of him that don't directly tie into the Tawn. But if you'd like to hear my rants on Cúhollán or rants on any of the other characters, I can go on a ranty ramble about most of them, to be honest. Let me know. I might even rope in some of my storyteller friends to join me on my rambling rant. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. And I hope that you and those dear to you stay that way. <laughs>